podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Hi, welcome to the Snooker Scene Podcast. I'm Dave Hendon. This is part two of our look at the players who won the World Championship at the Crucible. Last week we ended with Stephen Hendry with Clive Everton and this week Phil Yates joins me to, to do the rest and we start with... Uh, Phil, the 1991 champion, John Parrott. Now, of course, he won at a time where Hendry had come through as a champion. Steve Davis was still very much a champion. And Jimmy White looked like he'd be a world champion. So for John to win it at the time he did was, it was amazing, really. Well, it was, but 1991 was Parrott's year. He also won the UK Championship six months after winning the world. I think his first session performance against Jimmy White in the final was nothing short of amazing. He led 7-0 after that first session. The only ball he missed in live play was a black off its spot with the cue ball very close to the side cushion when he got no positional ambition anyway. Apart from that, he was flawless. And of course, seven frames was ultimately the margin of victory, 18-11. But also, you know, he hadn't just come from nowhere. I mean, he'd already been in a world final, obviously lost to Davis, but he'd won tournaments that now would probably be on Eurosport or be, people would be able to watch. But back then, people maybe saw the results on Seafbacks, like the European Open and so on, but they hadn't seen them. But he, had, he was a regular winner already, wasn't he? Well, he made a very immediate impact in the professional game. It took a while for him to win his first world ranking event. He did so in February 1989 at the European Open in Deauville, overcoming Terry Griffiths. And so it was only two years later that he won the World Championship. He was one of those players going there, you knew he could win it. He wasn't the favourite, but you knew he could. Mm. And a good bloke, John. Tremendous. You know, over the years, Snooker's been very, very fortunate to have so many good ambassadors. We'll talk about one a little later on, Mark Selby and also Ken Doherty. And I think John Parrott, very much the model professional and a really intelligent guy who was fun to be around. Yeah, and of course now we see him on the BBC where uh, I think he's become a, a really good pundit. Well, let's go on to the, the next champion is Ken Doherty, 1997. Of course, we had the Hendry years that would seem like they would stretch on forever at one point. But then they ended uh, to, to Ken in 97. And, and not only, it's a bit like Joe when Joe won it in 1986, he didn't just win it, he beat the number one player in the game, and, and for Ken, I suppose it was double satisfaction, he's world champion, but he's beaten Hendry. Yeah, absolutely, in a very strange final as well, Stephen wasn't right in that match, I don't know what was uh, the matter with him, but he just wasn't right, taking nothing away from Ken though, Hendry actually scored more points in that final than Ken, but Ken won 18-12, and it was a great result for Snooker, because, as you say, a really good bloke, and it was also the fact he was the first ever winner from the Republic of Ireland, and he got a fantastic reception back in Dublin after he'd won the title. I think that was really good for snooker, you know, not just in, in the UK, not just around the world, but in that particular part of the world. I'll tell you what, though, you know, before that championship began, I think Ian Doyle, his then manager, played an absolute master psychological stroke. I rang him up to do a, a feature, um, a sort of preview piece for the championship for the Irish Independent. And Doyle absolutely slagged off Ken. He mm -hmm. was saying that he could sleep for Ireland, he's not dedicated, he's wasting his talent. And I said, are you sure you want all this on the record here? And he said, absolutely. So, of course, we did the piece. It was big news in Ireland. Clearly, Ken read the piece and was motivated by it to such a degree, he came out with the fire coming out of his nostrils and obviously went on to win the title. Yeah, and a little bit like Joe uh, Johnson, he, he did struggle next season, suddenly the expectation, people watching his results, but like Joe, he got to the final again. Well, yeah, I thought that was uh, a wonderful achievement for Ken because no one was expecting it, but he's that kind of player, you know, when he was at his best, he always used to seem to, to rise to the occasion, uh, got to a, a Masters final, he came very close to winning a wonderful UK Championship final against Stephen Hendry, when Hendry was in his absolute pomp. I think Hendry made seven centuries 
in that match, and Ken was competitive in the contest. He was a really good match player, came close to winning three consecutive world ranking events. Now, that's a, a tremendous feat in itself. So he was a worthy world champion, and of course he, he carried the crown perfectly. He was just a wonderful advert for the game. Yeah, well, the person he lost to, of course, in 98 was John Higgins, and uh, I talk about the Hendry years, but by that point, Higgins had become, I think, the best player in the world, and it wasn't a big shock, was it, that he, that he won the World Championship? It wasn't, no, but the fact was, he won the World Championship, and by doing so, ended Stephen Hendry's reign at the top of the world rankings. He won the, the tournament before, coming back from well behind in the final, and then Hendry had to just win the first round, he was going to be okay, no problem at all, just win the first round and he would be guaranteed to be world number one for the following season. But he lost in the first round, very surprisingly, suddenly the chance... To Jimmy White. To Jimmy yeah. White, yeah, absolutely. 8-1 yeah. down after the first yeah. session. And suddenly the chance arose for John Higgins to not only become champion of the world, but to end his fellow Scots reign, almost a decade-long reign, at the top of the world rankings. And he did both. It was uh, fitting, really, that... Uh, one Scot should take over from another because, apart from Hendry at that time, obviously Ronnie O'Sullivan had got all of the flair and the flamboyance in the world, but in terms of hard match players, Higgins in the 90s, indeed, until, until now, was one of the very best match players you'll ever see. I think at that point he, he had the perfect game because he had Hendry's scoring power and he had Davis's tactical nous. Now, if you've got the best parts of those two games, you, you are the perfect player, really. He won his first ranking title. 1994 at the Assembly Rooms in Derby. But for me, when I realised just how good he was going to be, was early the following year in 1995. He played Steve Davis in the final of the International Open. Then he was still a teenager, John, and you would expect Davis to at least have the tactical upper hand. Not so. Higgins bossed him in every single fashion, potting, break building and in safety. And I think he ended up winning the match 9-3. Now, if a teenager can do that against Davis then, you knew he was something special. Well, John Higgins is a four-times world champion, but of course it took nine years for him to win his second. Uh, if you just said that in 98, it's going to be nine years until he wins another one. I'm not sure either of us would have believed that. Well, during those nine years, it wasn't as though he went into the wilderness. He was winning other mm. events, wasn't he? And he was, by and large, very consistent. It just never happened for him at the Crucible. But when he won his second, you then felt, well, he can win a third, and subsequently he won a fourth. I think he's one of the great crucible players of all time, and who's to say he won't add to the tally? Mm. Well, he had. Well, I think part of it. Well, there was two things. I think one was he became a father, and that did slightly change his his maybe motivation at times. But the other one was he had a big setback at the crucible in, in two thousand. He was fourteen ten up in the semi finals to Mark Williams, lost seventeen fifteen, and that I think took a bit of getting over. So let's talk about Mark Williams because he replaced him as world champion. Again, it wasn't a surprise because Williams was already winning big events. He'd won the Masters and the UK, in fact, by the time he became world champion. He was the most relaxed world champion you'll ever see. Funnily enough, I was talking to Mark the other day about this. Before he went out for the final sessions of those big matches at the Crucible, he was in the press room cracking jokes and, and having banter with the lads, literally seconds before he was called yeah. onto, the, onto the stage. Totally unlike Stephen Hendry, who was hermetically sealed in that dressing room, getting psyched up for matches. Then he was just laughing and joking and without a care in the world, it seemed. Now, surely he did have a care in the world because he was involved in the biggest match a snooker player can be involved in. But he seemed to cope with it so, so well, not just at the Crucible, but at the Masters, elsewhere. Look at the, the record he's got for most first-round victories in succession in ranking events. Is it 48, something it like is, that? It is, yeah. So, you know, that just goes to show that he's not... 
um, a player who becomes victim to nerves on many occasions, and he certainly didn't at the Crucible. Also, the thing with Mark you've got to realise is he's two World Championship wins. Both were done in very, very different ways. The first one, a real big comeback against his good friend and fellow countryman, Matthew Stevens, who led overnight. And then in the second final he played against Ken Doherty, which he won, he had to stave off a fight back mm. from Ken. Mm. Also, I think, I mean, if you look at the class of 92, he's always bracketed, obviously, with, with John Higgins and, and Ronnie O'Sullivan, who we'll come on to in, in due course. But I think now people sort of see Mark almost as the junior sort of member of that group. But actually, for a long time, he was the best player in the world. And, and unlike those two, he won the UK, the Masters and the World Championship in the same season and was world number one. I mean, that's pretty impressive going. Only Davis and Hendry have done that. And, of course, back then when the world rankings were only updated at the end of every season... I remember, I think he wrapped up the world number one spot in February at one point. He was extraordinary in how he used to accumulate ranking points. I think Williams was the victim of his own timing in many respects because of the fact that he was in an era where he was playing against O'Sullivan, Hendry and Higgins at their best. But in a top five all time, I think I'd place him in the top five just about. That's how good he was. Yeah, absolutely. And, and uh, you know, still going strong, still in the top 16 uh, as we speak. Unfortunately, we don't have long to do this podcast, so we're going to have to rattle through to, to Ronnie O'Sullivan. Now, Clive and myself did a whole podcast on Ronnie when he turned 40. I suppose the interesting thing about him in the World Championship, you know, he's a five-times winner right now, but he won it relatively late. He was 25. He'd already won everything else in the game. And there was always that question mark, I guess, can he actually win the big one until, until he did in 2001? The question mark then is the question mark now. 17 days. His attention span, his ability to uh, be interested in something for a lengthy period of time was under question in his mid-twenties as much as it is now. So that was, is he going to ever do it? To be honest, I've got this big thing. I hate it when people say he's a guaranteed world champion when they're talking about young players because no player is guaranteed to be world champion. But he was the closest thing I've ever seen. When he was 16, 17, you thought... It's only a matter of time. But by the time he was 25, there was a little grain of doubt in everyone's mind, including O'Sullivan's. But when he won for the first time, then you knew the, the shackles were off. And there's never been a more deserved winner, has there? Let's face it. No, and what was interesting about the first one, 2001, was before the final session, they used to have this parade of champions, which was always popular to see the old champions. But for some reason, they brought out Jimmy White. They said, oh, he's the people's champion, which I thought was really embarrassing for Jimmy, apart from anything else, because you know he was never world champion. And O'Sullivan was sort of observing this from his dressing room, and he actually said afterwards, he said, I never want to be in that position where I'm getting the sympathy vote. And I'm not saying, you know, that was the decisive factor in him winning, but I think it certainly sort of focused the mind and, and sort of persuaded him, actually, this is something, as a snooker player, you've got to be, you've got to be world champion. Absolutely. I think it was a very good point to make. I agree with you. Why shouldn't have been there? It's a parade of champions. And although it pains me to say this, he wasn't champion. Having said that, I think one thing that Ronnie might not have said in public, which I think he might have been believing, he sees this parade of champions and he thinks, well, I'm better than these guys. <laughs> the vast majority of them, in his mind, he's thinking that. Mm. So he knows he's got to go out and vindicate it. He's got to vindicate his talent. And finally he did it. And as I say, after he'd won the first, you just knew it was going to be a case of multiple world titles. Mm. And in some ways, you know, he's won it five times. The sort of the, some of the finals he won weren't that memorable, really, because he won them... So comfortably, I mean, he beat Graham Dot. I know he's 5 0 down, but he ended up winning it easily. Ali Carter never looked like he would beat him. Barry Hawkins did push him hard. But I guess, in some ways, the final he's best known for is the one he lost to, to Mark Selby, where that, that completely turned around. We'll come on to, to Mark later on. The other thing, of course, with O'Sullivan at the Crucible, 
the 147s and the one against Mick Price. I mean, five minutes, 20 seconds. Do you think that will ever be surpassed? I think it's impossible. Even by him. I think it's impossible. I think there are a number of Crucible records that will be up there for eternity. One is Fred Davis, the oldest yeah. ever competitor, yeah. 70 years of age. Mm. Can that ever be beaten? To me, no. And I think just in terms of how long it takes him to make a break these days, I think he's slightly slower than he was. But to make a 147, look at the, the shootout recently. Dave Gilbert, 127 total clearance. It was a fantastic break. Everything went right for him. He played beautifully. But that break, 127, and bear in mind there's not been much pressure on a 127, there's a 147. That break took over seven minutes to complete. So I think that is going to be there in stone forever. And hopefully Ronnie will, will continue to, to play for many years. I mean, there's no sign of any immediate decline. And he goes into this year's championship as the favourite. He didn't win it in 2002, though. Again, no first-time champion defending it. Peter Ebden uh, won it that year. And I suppose he was in the, sort of the, the Ken Doherty, John Parrott bracket. He was one of those players who was winning tournaments and would not be the favourite coming in, but it wasn't a huge shock that he won it. Well, he believed he could win it. I didn't. And I'll tell you why. Because he used to take so much out of himself to win matches because he used to do them in such a gritty, stubborn, feisty, determined way. And I always worked on the premise that he couldn't do this over such a lengthy amount of frames. Obviously 19 frames first round, then 25 for the next two, and carrying on the matches were getting lengthier and lengthier. And yet he did. And the way he won it was extraordinary really, because in the semi-final and final he won in a deciding frame. So he must have been mentally exhausted at the end, but it showed his mental strength. He made a great break against Matthew Stevens to win the semi-final. He seemed to have gone at the end of the final. He, I think it was 17-16, Hendry won the next round, and he, he was missing everything Ebden, and you think, well, Hendry's experience can't fail here. And yet he put together a really good last round. Well, I think circumstances help Ebden to a degree, but of course they always do for world champions. When he was playing Stevens, he was within one frame of defeat, two down with three to play, and it looked as though he was going to leave the last red, which would have been frame ball. But the red came to rest on the top cushion. Had it stopped an inch before the top cushion, or bounced an inch more, I think Stevens would definitely have potted it and obviously won the match. But Ebden cleared up, potted a great pink or recall, won the match in the odd frame. And then against Stephen Hendry, no one gave him a chance. But you see, what had happened in the semi-finals with Hendry, he'd played that grudge match mm. against O'Sullivan. Yeah. O'Sullivan had said the rather ill-advised things about Stephen. Hendry was so fired up for that match, he played brilliantly in it. And I think after getting over the O'Sullivan hurdle, maybe subconsciously he let the guard down and that was the worst thing he could possibly do against Ebden. Mm. I do, yeah, I mean, I think Hendry has sort of admitted since that he, he took him a little for granted because he's already beaten him in a world final. And maybe he thought, well, you know, he can't beat me. He did beat him. The big surprise to me was at the end he didn't give it the, the celebration. You'd have thought that would be the one time he would do it, but he didn't. I suppose he was just so exhausted. I think he was. I really think he was. I mean, he was very physically fit. And clearly no one's ever had uh, Peter Ebden's mental fortitude or willpower. He used to will himself to win mm. at times, not just in the World Championship, but you know, in seemingly low-key matches. He wanted to gain victories more than I think any other player. But what an achievement. Yeah, and I'll say this as well. You know, he was a very good world champion for the sport. It was not a great time, actually, for snooker. The circuit was sort of retracting and there weren't that many tournaments. But he did... I mean, he did all sorts of things. He played snooker in, in Harrod's shop window and all sorts. He would do anything, which is what you won from the world champion. And, and actually, most of the players on this list have, have done their bit, haven't they? Well, absolutely. I mean, they, they do their bits in different ways. I mean, you'll never be a, 
uh, in a situation where Ronnie O'Sullivan or someone like that is going to be the ultimate PR man, but it's what he does on the table yeah. that contributes. Yeah. So, in some way, they all contribute, but I think Ebden definitely, in that year, he, he did a wonderful job. Mm. The next champion, Sean Murphy, of course, is the first qualifier to win it since Terry Griffiths in 1979. One of those players who'd been earmarked, and he was young anyway, he was only 22, but he'd been earmarked from as a teenager as a potential champion, but a lot of people have been earmarked as potential champions and they sort of drift away and you don't sort of hear from them. Uh, an incredible achievement for Sean. It was. I mean, it was interesting. He was the first qualifier to win at the Crucible since Griffiths in 1979. And there were so many parallels because... To win the championship in 79, Griffiths had played absolutely brilliant snooker. He'd made so many superb clearances at just the right time. The best snooker he'd ever produced. And that was the same with Sean. What people don't remember is the first round, he actually played Chris Small, who was then ailing with the, the bad back and wasn't the player he had been. So that was virtually, and this is no disrespect to Chris because he was injured, it was virtually a bye for, for Murphy. So he didn't play well in that match, but as the tournament progressed, as the championship progressed, he became better and better, and he's potting from distance. I think it's the best we've ever seen there. Mm. And also, I mean, because he had played at the Crucible before, I remember the first time he played there, I think he was 18, 19, and he spoke like a, like a 50-year-old. You'd have thought this was his 30th Crucible. He was so self-assured, it was, it was almost frightening. And he came up with some stuff, I want to be regarded, you know, as one of the all-time greats with the likes of Stephen Hendry, Steve Davis, and I'm thinking, well, looking at his ranking, you know, this is a little bit of a grandiose announcement for someone of his current status, but he clearly believed he could do that. Obviously, he's not risen to the, the Hendry Davis heights yet, but he's had a very, very good career, and I don't think anyone over the 17 days, well, let's put it this way, from the last 16 onwards, I don't think anyone has ever potted better to win the championship. No, absolutely. Uh, 2006, uh, Graham Dodds. I mean, Graham, he'd been in a final, uh, lost to Ronnie two years earlier, but it was a huge shock that he won the World Championship. Let's not, let's not pretend it wasn't. It was massive. I always see him as the sort of, the watershed. He's the guy you mention when you say, well, if Graham Dodd can win it, <laughs> this guy can win mm. it. I was really pleased for him. Um, I'll tell you what, though, I think he was treated very badly immediately after the final. It was a lengthy match, yes. It was one frame, I think, of 77 minutes. It went on very late because it started late, mm. and they only played six frames in the afternoon because of that ridiculousness about having to stop the session because of other TV commitments. He got a really bum rap for being involved in what was a poor final. It wasn't his fault. Ebden was playing slower than he was. And so I think a lot of the gloss was taken off his achievements. Ironically, Dot's best snooker wasn't when he won the World Championship. It was the year after when he won the China Open. There he showed just what a fluent player he can be, what an entertaining player he can be. Um, at the Crucible, it was all about winning, and that's what he did, win. But also, people talk about the final, understandably, but in the quarterfinals, he beat Neil Robertson. In the semifinals, he beat Ronnie O'Sullivan. So it's not like he had it easy to get to the final. Absolutely. And in that Ronnie O'Sullivan match... In the third session of four, he won all eight frames. That was the match, wasn't it, where O'Sullivan at the end gave his cue away? Yeah, yeah. We've got to remember with Graham Dott, at one point in his career, he became so disillusioned that after losing in the Welsh Open, he was driving home <laughs> and stopped on a service station and basically had enough and he tried to break his cue. Couldn't break it, could he? Yeah. And he couldn't break it. <laughs> he said a lorry driver was looking at him thinking he was a lunatic. But the analogy there was, at the Crucible in 2006, all of those stars couldn't break him. Yeah, yeah, and of course he got to another final, 2010, and, and, and again, got stuck in. I mean, he's a player who, 
he makes the most of what he's got, doesn't he? And, and also, he's very good under pressure. In those real high-pressure situations of the Crucible, you know, he's come good so many times. Yeah, and also, I think, his motivation, clearly, there's money involved, there's status and all that kind of stuff, but I think he wants to prove people wrong all the time. That's, that's the incentive he's got. And as you say, to get to uh, those finals as well as Woody's, shows that he wasn't a one-trick pony by any means. Mm. Well, the player he lost to in 2010 was Neil Robertson. Another player who had emerged as a, as a champion, was certainly a contender, and uh, a great story for him because, of course, he had to sacrifice a lot. He'd come over from Australia to the UK, had to base himself here, famously only had 500 quid when he started, and his mother had never seen him play live, and, of course, she came over. He didn't know she was coming. She came over during the semi-finals, and at the end, they got the flag out, the Australian flag. Just a great story. That uh, little episode made me feel very old because it was the first time I realised that the players' mothers were younger than me. <laughs> so <laughs> that was a wake-up call. Now, I was so pleased for Robertson. Over the course of his career, he's done three things you need to do. He's realised that you have to practice and work very hard at your game. He's done that. The second thing is you need to be totally steely under pressure. What a match player. Mm. And third, he's been prepared to take advice. Uh, no more so than when he took advice from the greatest brake builder of all time for many years, Stephen Hendry. Hendry basically sort of cut off a few rough edges from Robertson's game, and now we know he's one of the, the premier brake builders in the game himself, having made a 100-plus centuries the season before last. I think him winning it was great for the game because it showed that a, a foreign player, an overseas player, could make the sacrifice, could leave home, could come here, work hard, and get to the pinnacle. And also, it seems you've got to really play well to beat him there. I mean, I remember Ronnie played great one year to beat him. Mark Selby in that semi-final two years ago, that was an incredible match. Barry Hawkins last year, that was an unbelievable final session between those two. As we go into this year's event, Robertson will be one of the leading, I guess, two or three contenders to win it. I very rarely have a bet on the World Championship because I think these days it's so open. But if I was going to have a bet, I think it would be on Neil Robertson. Mm. I think he's got the desire, I think he's got the capabilities to be mentally involved for all 17 days. He's had a lovely season, really. OK, it started out slowly, but then he won the Champion of Champions and the UK Championship, making a one four seven break. He's got all the credentials. It's difficult to make predictions about the Championship, as I say these days. It is so, so open. It's not the three, four contenders and then the rest, as it used to be. But I think Robertson has got a wonderful opportunity. What a shame, though, that he doesn't get more coverage back home. I mean, Australia, they love their sporting winners, but snooker is a real minority sport, and you think, well, he becomes world champion, that's going to make a difference. He did get a little bit of publicity, but not as much as he deserves, really. That's right, yeah. I mean, Australia is a very outdoor society, and maybe that plays into it. Mm. He's not even the greatest Q sports exponent from Australia. That has to go to the billiards player, Walter Lindrum, who was perhaps more dominant in his sport than anyone from that country, apart from Sir Donald Bradman in cricket. But, Neil, yeah... Great ambassador for the country, and I would love to see him, actually, when the Australian goal field's yes. open at some point, because I know that he wants to do that badly. Yeah, yeah. OK, well, of course, as I mentioned, uh, he lost in the semis two years ago to Mark Selby, who went on to, to recover from that. He had, a, he had a poor first day against Ronnie O'Sullivan, but not least because he was so tired from the semi-final. But second day, turned it round, and uh, again, a very, very worthy winner, someone who has worked about as hard as you can work on his game. Absolutely, yeah. You know... When they were coming through at Willie Thorne Snooker Centre in Leicester as juniors, Malcolm Thorne, who's now passed away very sadly, used to send reports to snooker scene for us to do these junior tournaments. And Selby was doing pretty well, but at the time it always seemed as though Tom Ford, who's now a professional, 
was going to be the one to watch. And yet Selby just kept improving, sticking at it. Had a very hard childhood, didn't he? Yeah. Now he's a family man, he's really happy. It really is a success story all the way around. I have to say, I commentated on his first ever world ranking event final appearance. He played David Gray up in Scotland, I believe. And it was a very poor match. And after that, I didn't think he was going to climb to these heights. But I'm really glad he has. It could not happen to a nicer man. Yeah, and this is what annoys me. And we'll read this, uh, you know, this week with all the chip previews. And it's not Ronnie's fault either, but you'll get these pieces. There's no one interested in snooker apart from Ronnie O'Sullivan. What, what these journalists mean is they can't be bothered to find out these stories. Because Mark Selby's story could be a film, isn't it? I mean, it is rags to riches. And, he, and like you say, he's done it through sheer hard work, force of will, and also having that self-belief. You know, he, not just in the world final, he's playing Ronnie O'Sullivan. A lot of players have buckled against him. He didn't. Well, I think there are a few players that O'Sullivan over the years hasn't enjoyed playing for varying reasons. Mark King, Peter Ebden... Graham Dodd and Mark Selby. Although I think in the last few months, I think O'Sullivan's come to realise and respect Selby a lot more. Mm. And in a sort of perverse kind of way, I think that's helped O'Sullivan when he plays Selby. We've yeah. seen a couple of really good performances from Ronnie uh, against Mark in the, uh, in the Masters and also in the Welsh Open. So maybe if they play at the World Championship again, it might be a little bit of a uh, different psychological dynamic to when they played in that final. But yeah, it was... People term that as the tortoise and the hare, which was totally incorrect. What you've got to remember with Selby is he's got a great all-round game. Yes, he's a grinder when needs be, but he's also a terrific potter, and he's a very heavy scorer. Recently he made his 400th century in professional competition, which I believe places him fifth on the all-time list. So he's not all about one department of the game. To describe him as a grinder and to put him into the, the bracket of someone like Cliff Thorburn... Is not true. He can play all kinds of games very, very well. Yeah. So we come on to the current champion, the man who's going to be walking out on Saturday, uh, Stuart Bingham. Um, a great, another great story. I mean, let's be honest, Phil, if we'd have sat here a year ago, neither of us would have said Stuart Bingham's going to win the World Championship. But I think we were, we were both pleased that he did. Really pleased? How could you not be? He won four tournaments, you know, last season, the World Championship being the fourth. Um, I couldn't see him winning it, though. How many players, by the way, cry when they win the championship? <laughs> Not very many. So how many players cry when they get to the one-table setup? Yeah, yeah. Now, he did. Mm. And I thought at the time, even then he was in the semi-finals, I'm thinking, well, that's it. That's his final play. He's through to the one-table setup for the first time in his career at a very advanced age. I think he was 38 at the time. So, you know, he's done what he wants to. Maybe now he'll fizzle out in the semi-finals. Yeah, right. I was right there, wasn't I? He beat Trump. It was a classic match. And then in the final, twice he looked as though, again, he was going to fizzle out against Sean Murphy. But on each occasion, he pulled himself up by his bootstraps. Fantastic. Really good. It was not quite the rags to riches story of Selby, but it was the story of a man who's been a journeyman for pretty much his entire career and then has two or three golden seasons... And then the, the final crescendo, if you like, is to win at the Crucible. Who would have thought it? Yeah, and I think the reason so many people warmed him was, you know, we're used to sportsmen and women in this day and age being very conscious of coming in for an interview, mentioning their sponsors, saying the right thing. But with him, it was just an honest reaction. Like you say, he was so happy just to be in the one table. He'd watched the World Championship all his life. Suddenly he was part of it, and he couldn't contain his excitement, and that was infectious. And what a stupid world we live in, by the way. At the <laughs> end of the final... 
he said, there I was playing in all these qualifiers at Prestatin. Yeah. You don't want to go there, and yeah. now you're here. And the people in Prestatin took umbrage. How could they possibly take umbrage? He wasn't talking about Prestatin. He was involved talking about being involved in, in a multi-table yeah. situation in some upstairs room with no one watching. Mm. You know, so he's been through all of that, and he's the typical half-cuel travel person, isn't he? He plays in virtually everything. Always got a smile on his face. I interviewed him recently at the shootout, and I actually noticed before the interview that when he was introduced to the crowd by John McDonnell, who really gives it the, the full works, doesn't he? He was introduced to the crowd at the Hexagon Theatre as champion of the world, you know, <laughs> that kind of thing. And the smile on Bingham's face, mm. you know, it was as wide as the River Thames. Now, bear in mind, the shootout was nine months after he'd been crowned world champion, so the novelty still hasn't worn off. No. No, quite right. Well, it's into that. So we're at the end of our list. Now, what's interesting about the list is, you know, some years you go to the World Championship and the overwhelming favourite wins. Some years they don't. And I guess at the moment, the year we're in, so many tournaments, so many winners now, it is harder than ever, I think, to say, OK, this guy, he's going to win. Ronnie O'Sullivan, OK, you know, we know he's probably the best player if everyone plays the best. But World Championship's not as simple as that, is it? With all the pressure and everything and also the draw. It's, it's very difficult to say who's going to win. Purely on ability, you've got. 10, 12 obvious contenders, so that makes it difficult. Yeah. Secondly, you don't know what the seedings are going to be until after the China Open. So, you know, the seedings and therefore the, the toughness of each segment of the draw makes a, a big difference. You always get one of those portions of the draw that's described as, the, you know, the group of death, yeah. if you like. Yeah. So that's the second thing. The third thing is, nowadays, you've got so many good players outside the top 16. So you can have a really difficult match in the first round or you could have a relatively easy one. So, until that draw is made, until the seedings are known, what can you say? All you can say is, I think there's 12 players who've got a good chance, but maybe even a few more than that. What I think we can say, and I've been saying this year on year for about seven or eight years now, I think the 2016 World Championship is going to be the most wide open ever. Well, we're all going to enjoy it. Phil and myself are commentating on Eurosport. It starts on April the 16th, 17 days of snooker. There won't be any podcast during the World Championship, purely because there's enough snooker to focus on. But we will be back after the Championship to review it and to reflect on who is the champion, whether it might be a new winner or whether it's one of the people that we've listed over the course of these two podcasts. Thank you, Phil. Everybody, enjoy the World Championship. I know I will. Sports Social Podcast Network.